Well, it's good to see you all again. Uh, if this is your first week, I uh, just want to introduce myself. My name's Matt. I'm on the staff team here as well, along with Tim and a few others. Uh, and we partner with the students who coordinate and lead the club to see Jesus proclaimed on campus. Uh, this semester, we're reading through Ephesians, and the passage that Janet just read for us is the passage that we'll be looking at today. And I want to begin by asking you a question. If you died tonight and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I save you from my judgment? What would you say? It's a heavy question. It's an important question. Probably the most important question you'll ever have to answer. Because the answer that you give will determine where you spend eternity. I want to give you a moment now, if you haven't already at some point in your life, to formulate what you would say in your minds. I'm not going to ask you to tell me or anyone else what it is, but it's important that you have an answer and that you're clear on what that answer will be, because the Bible is very clear on this. One day you will have to give it. This isn't a test that you study for and then never have to sit. And contrary to popular belief, according to the Bible, there is actually a right and a wrong answer. It is a serious question. Now, there's a whole bunch of answers that people give to this question. Uh, Let me give you a couple of them. Some of them will point to the fact that they belong to a particular religion or belief system. I'm sure you know people like that. Some of them might even be in this room. Others will appeal to things that they've done, things that they think make them deserving of salvation. It might be the observing of certain practices like prayers or sacraments. It might be volunteering or community service or caring for the poor or your neighbours. But whatever it is, it's an appeal to what they've done. Others will appeal to who they are as a person. It's not that they haven't done bad things, uh, but they are somebody who is essentially good. Not like that person over there. And so because of that, God should be favourable towards them. Still others will come along and they'll say, well, God is love, right? And so because of that, he'll accept me and forgive me regardless of who I am and what I've done, whatever I believe. That's the basis upon which God will save me. What would you say? What answer would you give if you were asked that question? Like I said before, we are studying the book of Ephesians. It's a letter. There's a letter written by a Christian leader called Paul. Uh, And we'll be working through it pretty well to week nine of this semester. And he wrote this letter to a bunch of people in Asia Minor. I think it was kind of roughly modern day Turkey. And at some point in their ministry, they became Christians. And Paul is writing to them to explain to them with greater depth and greater clarity just what it is that God has done for them and in them through the person of Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, he helps us answer the question that I just posed to you. And he does it by describing a before and an after. How is it that you can stand before God on Judgment Day and be confident that you'll be received rather than rejected? Well, it's because of what God has done in you, Ephesians. You were something, but now you're something else. And the thing that has moved them from that point to this point is our answer. The thing that we want to stake our hopes on. And we see it here in today's passage. So really, there's just three things to work out. Who were the Ephesians before? Who were they after? And then how did they make the move? So let's have a look, first of all, at the before picture. Who the the Ephesians were before they became Christians. And we see it there in verse 1. Paul tells them that they were dead. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Paul says, You sinned, and therefore you died. 
And Paul is not being figurative here. Uh, he is being literal. He's, he's saying that you're dead. And that profoundly reshapes for us our understanding of death. You see, the way that our world thinks about death is that it's natural and that it's physical. That, you know, these verses, it's kind of like this idea that just kind of happens to us. It's just this part of life. But what these verses tell us is that that conception of death is wildly inaccurate. Because death is not natural. Here, it's a result of sin. And death is not physical. At least not completely, because we see there in verse 2, death is a state in which the Ephesians lived. So what is death? Well, let's let the Bible define death for us. It's characterized by three things in verses 1 to 3. The first one we see in verse 2 is that it follows the ways of this world. You see, the Ephesians, they didn't invent sinning. It's not like they were a particularly quite nasty bunch of people going around doing all sorts of spells and stuff and, and killing people. They were born into a world that was sinful. And that is the chief characteristic of the world, in fact, that the Ephesians and we live in. It lives in constant disregard to the God who made them and commands their obedience. And instead, it determines the way that it wants to live, irrespective of what God says to them. And so that kind of idea of just kind of setting your own morality and moving forward, that kind of notion of being true to yourself, well, that's society's highest ideal. Today, that is what it means to be fulfilled as a human being. But the Bible says that that's a definition of sin. It's that spirit of rebellion that says my way and not your way, and it pervades our world. And those who are dead follow the ways of the world. Second, it follows the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You see it there in verse 2 again. Now, that's an unusual title. It's a bit cryptic. Uh, but we can work our way into it. In first century cosmology, kind of thinking about the, the cosmos and who inhabited it, the air was another way of referring to the heavens. And that's where the spiritual beings reigned. And here we see two things. One of them, that there's an acknowledgement that spiritual beings exist. And one of them is the ruler in that realm, the one who Jesus identifies elsewhere in the Bible as Satan. Now we see it there that the Ephesians both followed him and were influenced by him, for he is at work in those who are disobedient. Now, this is kind of getting a bit trippy, right? We live in the West. We don't believe in demons or anything like ghosts, like it's all science, right? But the Bible actually expands our view of things and actually makes us understand that reality is far more complex and far more scary than perhaps we thought it was. Because when we hear that this is this is kind of spiritual being at work in those who are disobedient, we instantly kind of think demon possession, right? Like eyes rolling off into the back of our head. Uh, but that's not what this is saying here. We're not actually told how the influence happens, just that people, when they disobey God, they're not the only ones involved in that process. Somehow, in some way, Satan is as well. And if that doesn't make you outrageously comfortable in your seat, you just want to squirm around a bit, then there's something wrong with you. Because I want to say that that is probably one of the most unexpected and terrifying statements of the Bible. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, then you are, by definition, a follower of the devil. You might not be a Satanist, but there is some element of your rebellious, sinful life that is satanic. You might not be conscious of it. It certainly, almost certainly, isn't intentional. But this is what it is to be dead in your sins. You are aligned and influenced, not just by the world that's in rebellion to God, but by the spiritual being whose sole aim it is, is to keep you there. So one and two, but it gets worse. The third thing that describes this state of death 
is in verse 3. We gratify the cravings of our flesh and we follow its desires and thoughts. See, the world and the devil, they're external influences, but our flesh is internal. It's here and it's one that we can't escape. You see, by our very nature, we desire to do what is displeasing to God And rather than resist those desires, our inclination is to fulfill them. And we know this is the case because of children. I don't know if you've spent much time with children. Um, I have two daughters. One of them is at a teachable age. And I have taught my daughter a lot of things, how to brush her teeth, how to go to the toilet, how to comb her hair. But the one thing that I have never had to teach her is how to be selfish. Nobody takes their child to playgroup, right, and kind of gathers their kid and, and puts them down and says, okay, see that boy over there? When he takes your toy, you punch him in the face. Like, nobody does that. They don't need to be taught that. It's something that is inbuilt in us. It comes with the factory settings. But here's the thing, right? We laugh when it's a two-year-old. What if it's a 20-year-old? Because it's not as if we grow out of this, is it? We still follow the desires and the thoughts and the cravings of our flesh. We just now do it in respectable and socially acceptable ways. We don't hit people, but we gossip and we badmouth and we betray. We don't steal things, not most of us anyway, but we resent. We envy. And I think that's the real test, isn't it? Who are you when nobody is watching? Who are you when there are no consequences for your actions? I reckon the two realms where you see that in the car because you're in that box of protection, or when you're in front of the computer screen. Who are you when nobody's watching? And I think you'll see a confirmation of what Paul is telling us in this passage. Now, you put all that together, and you understand then what death is. It is a way of life, contrary to God's intentions, that you both consciously choose and are trapped in, unable and unwilling to change. And that state of death, Paul says, is by nature deserving of wrath. That is what we are in our native natural environment. And that's not a neutral thing. Some people might go, that doesn't sound so bad. Kick back, do what I want, hang out with friends. But when we're described as by nature deserving of wrath, that tells us something. God is angry and he will judge us for the state that we have put ourselves in. And so in that sense, death, according to the Bible, is almost like death row. You're imprisoned in a cell, awaiting sentence, and then execution. Now, that's pretty heavy. It's week two. It's like, well, man, I'm just starting my tutorials here. I don't need to have that in my mind just, just at this point. right? And I think that there are two responses to that death sentence, if we take it seriously. First of all, the first one is actually denial. Denial is the response of sin. The dead person hears God's verdict, but refuses to accept that they're dead. They might admit that they've done wrong things, uh, they, they, they might kind of go, yeah, yeah, I have done, I've done that, that evil thing. But they'll hold on to the delusion that they are fundamentally good rather than the fact that they are fundamentally dead. I still remember I had a conversation. It just stuck with me over so many years. Uh, there was a girl uh, that I knew when I was at uni as a student, and I had the opportunity, the great opportunity to explain the gospel to her. And we came to this particular point in the gospel that you are dead. And I, and I told her that, that the Bible tells you that you are spiritually dead. And she said to me, looked me square in the face, how dare you say that I'm dead? And she stormed out of the room, and that was the last time I ever spoke to her. She denied God's verdict, and instead she followed the desires and the thoughts of her sinful mind. She was unable and unwilling to accept what God had said to her. So that's denial. The second response, and this is the right response, is despair. 
Because if what God is saying about you and me is true, then we are beyond cure. Because if, even if I wanted to change my state, which I don't because I love my sin, I am bound by chains and influences that I cannot break and I cannot remove. And that's what Paul wants you to feel as he writes this. Despair. He wants you to see just how terrifying and hopeless your situation is. You are dead. And there is nothing that you can do about it. But he doesn't do that because he's a jerk. You know, some people like that. They like making feel people uncomfortable, just getting under their grills. But he does it to show us just how incredible God is to those of us who believe. And so he spends those first three verses of the passage laying it on thick so that he can get to verse 4, so that he can say to them, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but now God has made you alive in Christ. And we see it in verse 4. He piles on clause upon clause to build the suspense, and he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. Is God angry? Yes. But he's also loving. And he takes we who are dead, who refuse to live under his rule, enslaved to the world, enslaved to the devil, enslaved to our flesh, and he breaks the chains and he brings us to life. Now, what does that life mean? Well, it's sort of like the death thing as well. We need to let the Bible shape our understanding of what that life is. And it's not just physical life. It can't be because the Ephesians were alive before they became Christians and they were dead. It's a part of it. It will be one day. But when he talks about life here, what he means is a whole new existence. And I know that because of how he describes the life that we have. God makes us alive in Christ. Christ is the sphere, the region in which our life is found. Now, this shouldn't surprise us uh, because if you were here last week, we've seen that God gives believers every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he does that, chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, because he is uniting all things in his rebellious creation in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Jesus. And how he does that in the life of the believer is he unites them to Jesus. This is what the Christians call in their theology the doctrine of the union with Christ. And the nature of that union when we're united with him is such that whatever happens to Christ happens to us. Last week we talked about it like a plane, if you remember. If you're in the plane, united in the plane, then whatever happens to the plane happens to you. It takes off, you take off. It flips, you flip. If it kind of barrel rolls, you barrel roll. That's what it is to be united to Christ. Whatever happens to him happens to us. And so we need to ask the question then, what is it that happens to Jesus? And the answer we receive is actually in the back end of chapter 1. So scan your eyes back up to chapter 1, verse 20. This is what happened to Christ. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Now, that's what happened to Christ. Now, look what happens to the Ephesian believers. Chapter 2, verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And don't miss the importance of that. God didn't just raise us from death to life with Christ. He raised us from death to a ruling life. Because where was Christ seated in chapter 1, 20 and 21? At God's right hand above all the powers of the world. And so here is the great reversal that God demonstrates 
his love for us by doing. Humanity, dead in their sins, following the ways of the world, following the ways of the devil, following the cravings of their own flesh, subjugated by powers, but willingly there, but dead and helpless to get out of it. God takes us and he unites us to Jesus, such that when Jesus rises from the dead and is seated above all of those powers, we come with him. And rather than be ruled by those powers, we now rule over them and are finally, finally able to live a way that is contrary to the way that we used to live when we were dead. And God does this, we see in verse 7, so that in the coming ages when Christ returns, we might see the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Instead of judgment, we receive blessing. Instead of condemnation and chains, we receive justification and a crown. And even now, even though it doesn't look like it, we rule with Jesus as God unites all things under him. We just need to step back and kind of settle in that a bit. We were dead. But what God does, he takes the murderer and he makes him majestic. He takes the liar and he makes her a lord. He takes the petty thief and makes them a prince or a princess. The most dark and despicable of characters, which includes you and me, he takes them and completely changes their status and therefore their destiny. And that's what Paul wants us to know. That's what Paul wants us to see, that we can be in this state of death but find ourselves in a state of life. And so the question becomes, how? How do we move from one to the other? And Paul gives us our answer in the last part of this passage in verses 8 to 10. He tells us that it's God that does the moving. He tells us that we are saved by God's grace. He repeats that twice in the passage, and not by our works. So have a look at verse 8 and 9. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, grace, it's a technical term in the Bible, but don't let it scare you. It basically just means undeserved favour. It's the giving of a gift without reference to what somebody has done or what they deserve. So think Christmas, when your mum gives you something, you didn't deserve anything, you've been a rat bag to your mum, that's grace. And even though it's attributed to God here, we experience it most days, right? It's not just at Christmas. When you're coming to university and the bus is leaving the bus stop and you are late and it's your fault because you slept in because you were watching Netflix last night, you should have been doing your study and then going to bed at a normal time. He stops the bus and opens the door for you. That's grace. Didn't deserve it, but you received it. And what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is that is your salvation. That movement from death to life is because God, in his generosity, regardless of whether or not you deserved it, he chose to give it to you. It's because of his grace that you were saved. Now, to understand the full implications of that, I think we need to see what doesn't save us, which is why Paul gives us the opposite side of the coin. We aren't saved by our works. You see, this is the hard thing to hear, I think, today. There is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. Nothing at all. And it's because you are dead. You can't make yourself alive. Now, a couple of years ago, my mum was on a cruise uh, and the ship had stopped by the, the island and they kind of went off to swim by the shore and she's swimming. And the one thing that you never want to happen when you're swimming in a kind of a foreign reef somewhere, something bumped her. She turned 
It wasn't a shark. It was a dead body. I know, right? Can you imagine? Somebody had had a heart attack and died. And so she's here in the surf with this dead body and she has to work out how to get it to shore. So here's my little old mum dragging this body along, kind of trying to get the body to the shore. Now, I want you, it's horrible, right? But I want you to imagine halfway there, she's tired, she's exhausted, she's not a good swimmer. She turns to the body and says, can you help a little, please? If it wasn't so tragic, it'd be comic, right? Because you don't ask a dead body to do that. It can't do that. You see, a sick person can give themselves medication. An injured person can apply pressure to the wound as the doctor sews them up. They can contribute to the process. But a dead person can't give themselves mouth to mouth. They need somebody from the outside to come in and give them the breath of life. And if they survive, they contribute nothing to their resuscitation because they're not able to. And what this passage tells us is that those who are dead in sin, which is all of us, we are spiritually and morally incapable of doing anything that is pleasing to God. Nothing to merit his favour, nothing to undo the deadly acts that we've already done. And the great tragedy, I think, is that people still think that they can. We do it too. If I just pray hard enough, if I go to enough church services, if I do enough community events, then I'll be acceptable to God. But God says to us, that way has not been left open for you. There is no merit here. No grounds for boasting. You must come to me in humility, casting aside your works if you were to be saved. And that's true whether or not you are going to become a Christian or whether or not you already are a Christian. And I think Christians can fall into this trap as well. A lot of us behave as though we're saved by grace, but we stay saved by our works. So God lets us into the kingdom, but we've got to you know, keep, keep it going. Otherwise, he might kind of turf us out again. And we do that, right? We sin, we get all upset, we distance ourselves from God, we stop reading our Bible, we stop praying, and we don't come back until we've sorted ourselves out or we've left it long enough so that God, okay, he's calmed down, now I I can go back to him. And what I want to say to you is on the basis of this passage, if that's you, then what you need to hear is that God is no longer angry with you. Yes, your sin is serious. Yes, your sin is deserving of God's wrath. But God's wrath is attached to the dead you. And you aren't dead anymore. You've been raised with Christ. And so your salvation is a work of God from first to last. Your works don't earn it and your works don't lose it. What guarantees your salvation is the grace, the generosity, the mercy of God. Now you might ask at this point, well hang on, if this is something that is done entirely by God, then do we just sit back, just kind of wait for God to make us Christians? And the answer, obviously, that Paul gives is no. Because even though God does the moving, he requires an active response from us. For the gift of God's salvation, it must be received. And we receive it, we see there in verse 8, through faith. Now, again, faith, like grace, it's a technical word, but don't let it scare you. It's actually an ordinary, everyday word. It just means trust. So when you got on the bus this morning to go to uni, you actually exercised faith because you trusted the bus driver to get you here safely rather than kind of drift around Mounts Bay Road and kind of turf you into the river. You put faith in him. And that's what the Ephesians did to Jesus. We saw it again last week, chapter 1, this time in verse 13, when they heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, what it was that Jesus had done to save them, they believed They trusted in the work of Christ 
And it was in that moment that they moved from death to life. Now, at this point, you might go, hang on a minute. You just told me that God is the one that moves me from death to life, but now they're believing, and all of a sudden, that's when that happens. So doesn't that mean that faith is something that we do? And I think this is a fantastic question, and I want you to pay attention to how Paul describes faith in verse 8. Have a look. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. He deliberately contrasts faith with works. It's not from ourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, this is where things get a little bit tricky, so let's keep kind of walking the fine line. Is faith something you do? Yes. But is it a work? Is it meritorious? No. It's part of the gift of salvation that God gives you. It's why you might hear some people talk about faith as the open hand that receives God's gift. It's an attempt to describe that even though we have an active response to God's offer of salvation, even that response is a part of God's gift to us. Now, it's subtle, but it's an important distinction because your faith doesn't save you. What you place your faith in saves you. So let's go back to the bus. Got on the bus this morning. Imagine there's two people on the bus that got onto the bus. One of them is supremely confident in the bus driver's ability. He's a family friend. He knows the driver has skills. Now, the other one almost died last year in a bus crash. And so they are absolutely terrified that that five-minute journey is going to be a burning wreck. Question for you. Which one of them got to university? Both of them. Because they both stepped on the bus. Now, the first guy, the first guy did a lot more faithing, right? But that didn't get him any more to uni than the second person did. So he can't boast in his supreme confidence because he did absolutely nothing to contribute to his arrival. It wasn't a work. It was an exercise of trust in the one who did the work. In this case, is the bus driver, but as concerns salvation, it's Jesus Christ. And so what matters is not the faith, but where you put it. And that's why answering the question that I asked at the beginning of the talk Uh, Why should I save you from my judgment? If you answer it, you start to answer by saying, because I put my faith in Jesus, that's a very dangerous way to answer the question. It's not wrong. The faith is in the right place, but it makes you the decisive agent, not God. And so even though the response of faith, genuinely experienced, genuinely done by somebody who becomes a Christian, even though we feel it, it is a gift of God. We bring nothing to the table, not even our faith. Salvation is the work of God from first to last. And yet the scriptures are still quite clear. It is a response that God calls upon us to do. And so that must make you think then that God must be fantastic, that not only does he ask us to respond to him, but when we do, he must be at work to bring it about. Now, there's one more thing to deal with, I think, before we finish. And that's the question of works. Because having understood all of that, that we can't earn our salvation, we can't lose our salvation through works, it might make us kind of start to think that works are kind of pointless, right? Because one way you can misunderstand this passage is to go, well, if salvation is entirely by God's grace, then it doesn't matter what I do. Because God is rich in mercy, he'll just keep forgiving me, just like he did before, and so I finally can do what I want. But to think that way is to misunderstand what God has done in you and why he's done it. Because he raises you from death to life for a purpose. And we see it there in our last verse, in verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what this verse tells us is that God actually cares about good works. In fact, he's planned a future whereby the people he saves will do them. And so the difference can't be no works versus works. The difference is why we do them. You see, the motivation changes. If works come before salvation, then the reason that we do them is so that we'll be saved. But as we've already seen, salvation comes irrespective of what we do, whether good or bad. It's just not part of the equation anymore. And because of that, that frees us and it changes the motivation. We're no longer uh, doing them to kind of assure ourselves that we're saved. We don't need to. Jesus gives us that assurance. He's the bus driver. He's the one that we've placed our faith in. What God has done in him, having been united to him, that happens to us. And because it's happened to Jesus already, then we are set. He has been raised to imperishable life. That can't be taken away from us. And so that then our attitude to our works changes. Instead, we do them because that is what God has created us to be and do. We are God's handiwork. He took what was dead and he made it alive so that as his people, we would behave in a way that is contrary to the ways of the world. Contrary to the ways of the devil, contrary to the cravings of our flesh. And in so doing, demonstrate to a world that is in rebellion what it looks like to be under the good and wonderful rule of Jesus. Raised and seated with him, free not to sin, but to obey and enjoy his blessings forever. And so Christians, we don't turf good works. We just do them for the right reasons. We commit ourselves to them. And we catch ourselves when we think that they're the reason that we're saved. And we forget that. Every Christian does. There's something about our sinful self that can't let go of the need to boast, to claim that we played a part in what God has done in us. But when we see it, we catch it, we repent of it. We remember that we are no longer dead, but we are alive, created for works of service that God has created in advance for us to do. And then we keep living out the life that God raised us to live. So with all that in mind, let me return to the question that I asked you at the beginning of the talk. If you died tonight and had to stand before God and give him a reason as to why he should save you, what would you say? What I hope you can see now is that any answer that begins with because I is the wrong answer. The only answer that God leaves open for us is because of what you have done for me in Jesus. Because Jesus lives, I live. Because Jesus rules, I rule. And that because of the grace of God in uniting me to him. You see, the only thing that you can contribute to your salvation is your need for it. And the only way you get it is to receive it as a gift. Any other answer is just boasting. It's an attempt to earn credit and merit for something that you are powerless to achieve. So what will you say on that last day?